Welcome to Warm Regards, conversations from the front lines of climate change. I'm Ramesh Longani, an associate professor of biology at Doan University. My regular co-host, Dr. Jacqueline Gill, is at Michigan State giving a talk and so will not be able to join us today. However, we have a guest co-host today, Dr. Joe Mascaro. Dr. Mascaro is the director of academic programs at Planet Labs. You might remember Joe from a previous episode about studying climate change from space. It's a great episode. So after you listen to this one, you should definitely go back and listen to Joe's episode. While Joe's episode on climate change talked about working with climate change from space, today we're going to talk with two youth activists who are making change on the ground in their local communities. We'll be speaking with two members of the climate change advocacy group, I Matter, Lily Gardner and Olia Wright. We're also going to wrap up with our new segment on unexpected science, talking about how bees are being impacted by climate change and what happens to their fat metabolism. So, Joe, how is it going, man? Pretty good, Ramesh. Thanks for having me. I know you're out in San Francisco, but I'm in the middle of the country, so we're digging out of the polar vortex here. What's it been like out there in San Francisco? Uh, it's been pretty wet here, but actually I was uh, in Michigan over the vortex and it was pretty dicey. We got down to about minus 17 or minus 18 Fahrenheit, so it was pretty cold. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you've been dealing with quite a bit of that as well. So, you know, one thing that's really interesting about the polar vortex is, you know, we have these periodic episodes and inherently we get, you know, minus 17. I think Minneapolis got to minus 50 or something like that, something ridiculous. And, you know, we start hearing, if it's so cold, where's all this global warming? But what's really interesting is the idea that, you know, maybe this polar vortex is actually impacted by climate change. Joe, have you heard of that connection between the two? I have, yeah. And, you know, I was also thinking back to my childhood in Michigan, Ramesh, actually. And of course, we would get cold snaps all the time, but I don't recall things like this, uh, certainly not lasting as long as they did. The other thing that's been happening is, you know, when I was a kid, we'd usually get our first snow in southern Michigan before Halloween or certainly before Thanksgiving. And this uh, past year, 2018, this fourth warmest year on record, you know, we didn't get snow until into January 2019. So, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're starting to see these almost contradictory pieces. You know, we get these blasts of cold air, but then we have these other climatological signals like late snowfall. And I think there are other signals like the one you described, Joe, uh, happening all over the country, sort of winter being pushed later and later. But I want to take a second and, and talk about the potential connection between the polar vortex and climate change. And now this is going to get a little atmospheric in terms of its description. And remember, I'm a plant ecologist, so I'm pushing outside of my wheelhouse. But suffice it to say, that one of the reasons that we are feeling this polar vortex is because of climate change warming and changing temperatures in the Arctic, where these cold air masses sort of hang out. And really, because of some rapid Arctic warming, we sort of lose a temperature difference between the North Pole and where we are sort of continental U.S. And what this does is this causes air masses, one of them being the jet stream that many of us have heard about, and this other air mass that sort of hangs out normally in the Arctic to sort of mix around differently. When we experience a polar vortex, that causes those cold air masses to dip down low and hit us in the continental US and Canada. And so, you know, it's a really interesting paradox because oftentimes it's hard to imagine climate change and global warming leading to these cold snaps. But Joe, I think, like you said, we just had the fourth warmest year on record. I think that was declared yesterday, right? By NOAA. Right. Yeah. Joe, I don't know if you also saw this. Recently, there was a survey put out by Yale Climate Communication showing that more, I think it's 73% of Americans now believe that global warming is happening. And I think 62% believe that it's being 
caused by human activity. What's your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting development, Ramesh. I mean, these numbers have clearly been moving up over the last 10 or 15 years, almost corresponding to global temperature increases. I mean, certainly in the 90s, you would have seen these belief numbers closer to the 40s or 50s in terms of the percentage of people that believe that this is happening and that it's caused by humans. So there's definitely been a trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even think about the belief going up with temperatures. That's a, that's a really good point. I'm sure somebody's made that graph somewhere to sound very sciencey. So yeah, you know, you think about these temperatures going up, you think about, you know, the fourth warmest year, and you see this sort of upward trajectory. Um, you know, another really important upward trajectory that we're seeing is a rush of new energy around climate action. And specifically, a lot of that action is coming from the youth who have said enough is enough and have organized to take action on climate. Groups like Zero Hours, who we interviewed a few months ago, there's Our Children's Trust, the Sunrise Movement, and the group that we're speaking with today, iMatter. iMatter is a youth-led climate change advocacy group. And more specifically, we're going to be talking with Olia Wright, who has led an iMatter campaign in her city and is leading a statewide initiative in Minnesota called Minnesota Can't Wait. And we're also going to be speaking with Lily Gardner, who's involved with a national high school Green New Deal campaign in Kentucky, if I remember correctly. So Lily and Olia, welcome to Warm Regards. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So I described iMatter as a climate change advocacy group, but how do you guys see iMatter? What is iMatter to you? So to me, what I did with iMatter is we worked in our city on a local level. So really what I'm seeing for my matter is they're helping youth across the country take action on climate change in their hometowns and on the local level. Okay. And Lily, what, how have you gotten involved with iMatter? Yeah, so actually I had not gotten involved with iMatter until I heard about it through Sunrise Movement. So obviously Kentucky is a place where environmental movements usually do not begin. I think that's a very diplomatic way to put it. Um, I think we're very polarized in our view of climate change, fossil fuels, and other things that are intrinsic to the movement. So that makes it kind of a difficult starting ground. I had become involved because I was really interested in making a difference and a change against something that I had observed in my community since I had grown up. And I can explain a bit more about that later if you want. So I hopped on a random national sunrise call. And I got this text while I was on it that was like, hey, you know, you're one of the first high schoolers who we've ever had on the call. Would you be interested in helping us figure out how Sunrise can become more accessible to high schoolers? And I was like, absolutely, of course. And from there, I was introduced to the lovely, lovely people at iMatter. And I wish that I had heard about them sooner. I wish that that was something that had been exposed to me. I think advocacy group is the best way to describe them, but they do more than simply advocate. They connect with people. They also empower people to make change in their communities. So advocacy is so multifaceted for them, which is so interesting to me. Lily, is one of the goals of iMatter to move these belief numbers? I mean, do you encounter people that are climate change skeptics and actually confront them directly or... Climate change skepticism for a lot of people who I encounter comes from a desire to not want to believe. I don't know if there's a better way to put that, but because so much of either their livelihood or someone they know's livelihood or even their community on the whole's livelihood is dependent upon things that are inherently hurting the environment 
or are fueling climate change than they do not want to believe. It's not that they disagree with the concept of science in general. It's that because this is a personal issue, they don't want to. And so I would say that not frequently, but I still do encounter people more than most who do not believe. When you have those conversations, how do you approach those conversations? Because I think that's an important thing that as a member of the scientific community, one of the challenges we face is that we think, hey, if we just throw a lot of facts at people, they'll come around to it. How have you engaged in conversations with people who are skeptical about climate change? So usually I try to begin a dialogue that is not founded in this idea of climate change, because I think when people hear that immediately, even though it's not and should not be a polarizing topic, it is one. That's never how I begin the conversation once I learn through any which way that they do not believe in it. I always say, okay, let's talk about something else that is inherent to your community. Let's talk about cyclical poverty. Let's talk about a lack of jobs. Let's talk about the flight of fossil fuels, specifically coal, any number of those issues. And then I end up bringing it back to this idea of we can solve those issues through something like, for example, the Green New Deal. But the real issue we're solving is this idea of climate change. So if you begin to accept the idea of climate change, then your circumstances are also going to change. I think you have to make it very tangible in a way that isn't scary. Olia, what about you? Do you run into individuals who are skeptical about climate change? And if so, how do you approach that? Yeah, definitely. I haven't run into a ton of people over my environmental action time period that I've been working in. There's definitely been a few a couple years ago when I was younger and working more in my city and giving presentations and people would have questions, not as much talking one-on-one. But I definitely agree with what Lily's saying. You definitely have to bring it around that it's not just the glaciers are melting. It's climate change is encompassing humanity as a whole. And we need to work on multiple issues to stop climate change. And things like the Green New Deal will help cover that. So one question is, how did you both get so passionate about climate change? Yeah, so I alluded to this a bit before, but I grew up in McGoffin County, Kentucky. I lived there until middle school. It's in the heart of eastern Kentucky. It's part of Appalachia. It's dependent upon coal and logging and other extractive industries. Throughout my childhood, I would say I observed the negative consequences of these industries on the people around me. It felt as though they had made these grand promises that were, one, impossible to keep, and two, now that their resources were running out or no longer able to be extracted, those promises were either forgotten or the idea that they would assist the communities in a transition away from those industries to something more sustainable or renewable was totally lost. It's so important to note that my mother moved to Kentucky 30 years ago from New England. And as soon as she moved there, people around her started to say, in 30 years, we are not going to be able to rely upon coal anymore. And people recognized that. But as the deadline came closer and closer, people became more and more fearful 
corporations and companies became much more interested in saving face than truly figuring out a way to equitably transition away from what they had. So I think all of those factors really culminated when I was a child because that is when I started to observe these catastrophic effects. Even though no one in my family is a coal miner, I still observe them in my community. And to this day, I observe them because they cause so many of the other problems. And so I think that's how I really got into this work in kind of a lengthy, verbose explanation. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's really interesting. Lily, I just wanted to say, I remember BP, British Petroleum, rebranding some years ago as Beyond Petroleum and thinking to myself, wow, that's great. They're moving beyond petroleum only to find that they're basically just pouring money into excavating new and, and deeper sources of petroleum. So, Yeah, I think that when you have a community where people begin poor and you promise to change that, and then they remain poor, but this still appears to be the only way out of their cycle of poverty. Even I had hoped that fossil fuel corporations or coal companies would decide that, you know, they were going to do something moral and something that was best for the people for once, even though that might be naive or ignorant, especially after observing things like black lung, bad working conditions, all these small things that didn't even impact coal company revenues or anything like that. I think we all had this hope that maybe a disenfranchised region would not continually be manipulated by outside forces. Olia, what about you? How did you get so passionate about climate change? It was quite a while ago. I started an Ornate Nature group, and I can touch more on this later. But I started a group with friends, and we did all these fun activities outside. But eventually, I started to feel like, oh, we're not doing enough by just going on hikes. Sure, it's very fun, but we're not having a great enough impact on the environment. And I was getting very overwhelmed and distraught and not really sure how to act on this issue because it just seemed so big and so overwhelming to me. I never was able to take action until someone told me about I Matter. I don't remember who, but someone sent me an email. It was like, I found out about this cool youth organization. You should look at it. They sound really cool. So we looked at it and I attended a call online and got just really involved and was amazed that there were actually these other youth out there that felt similar to me and were actually taking action too. So that really helped me get involved because I was like, wow, we may actually be able to make a difference. It's not just me up here in Grammar A that cares about this. Mm -hmm. There's people all over that care about that. And that's really where I got started from. So what are some of the climate change actions that you are involved with now? Legislation or are you involved with presentations? What are, you, what are each of you doing now in your local communities to move the needle on climate change? I started out working with our city on a local level with iMatter, and we helped our city get a grade on climate change. We gave them a report card on how they were doing at addressing climate change at a local level. And then we presented that to them along with a youth climate inheritance resolution that asked them to create a climate action plan, include youth in decision-making that has to do with climate change and the environment, and start the creation of their climate action plan within three months or something. And so we did a lot of presentations around our community, me and my Nordic Nature group, and we got signatures and had a bunch of people show up, and our resolution passed to a standing ovation. That That's was awesome. bad. It was pretty cool. So that was back February 22nd, 2017. Currently, I'm now working in my city on this action team that's creating our climate action plan. 
and we've hired a climate action plan coordinator that's helping write it, taking the lead on. And then we have this action team that looks at it and helps review it and things. And I also got involved through iMatter with this statewide youth coalition called Minnesota Can't Wait. We have multiple asks. One, which is stop all pipelines, including line three. The other one is asking Walt to take executive action to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And then the third and biggest one that we're doing is we are working on creating a statewide Green New Deal. And we are working with Representative Frank Hornstein on that. So currently, I am involved with my city and our climate action plan, and also with Minnesota Can't Wait on the statewide level working on a Minnesota Green New Deal. That's awesome. Lily, what about you? What are you working on these days? On a local level, I'm aiming to get my city to pass an endorsement of a federal Green New Deal. So I'm working with other environmental organizations across Kentucky, many of which are founded in youth environmental activism that just haven't They've been quite decentralized um, for a long period of time, and high schoolers have also been a missing piece of that. So when they say youth, usually they're referring to college students, which is a really problematic view and excludes a large chunk of the population who are going to be greatly impacted by the effects of climate change. So that's what I'm doing at a local level, and that's also what high schoolers across the nation are doing at a local level, facilitated by a partnership between Sunrise Movement and I Matter. So we're having tons of campaigns across the nation, which is super exciting to know that I'm not alone in this quest. And despite being now in a city that I believe will be accepting of an endorsement, I know that there are other people in very conservative states who are working to do the same things as me. On a statewide level, we have a Sunrise Hub in Louisville, and so they are lobbying John Yarmouth, who we began to lobby on December 10th with the Green New Deal action. And so is, he lobbying... a, is he a local uh, congressman or is he a uh, representative or senator? Yeah, he's one of Kentucky's House representatives uh, in the National House of Representatives. They're really trying to lobby John Yarmouth, but on a broader level, they are again trying in vain, I suppose, to contact representatives such as Andy Barr, who is from my district, but also senators such as Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. And unlike where Olia is a little bit, a lot more of our work is founded in how can we make environmental movements sustainable for a state like Kentucky? Mm -hmm. We try to support all of these national initiatives as best we can, but ultimately we have to reach a compromise that allows for buy-in in our state and I think that's a really delicate line to walk. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. Lily, I'm curious, this question is going to date me, unfortunately, by, and Ramesh by extension. But I remember vividly the first time I could vote in a national election, which was the Gore-Bush election in 2000, which obviously had a, some major themes around climate change and, and environmental protection generally. Do you feel frustrated that, I, I don't know if you voted yet, but I assume not. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are and whether climate change advocacy of the type you're pursuing would benefit from lowering the voting age and getting more high schoolers to exercise their, their opinion at the polls. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that you bring that up. To date you even more, I was not even born in 2000. Awesome, awesome. So <laughs> I have yet to vote, unfortunately. But I actually really believe in this idea of lowering the voting age, because I think that 
youth apathy turns into apathy as adults. And I think that's the greatest threat to progress. I think if we were to extend the voting age to 16-year-olds, as is kind of the common age that's been thrown about by organizations like Vote 16, then I think that we could start to nip some of that apathy in the bud. Because I think youth across the nation, especially in Kentucky, and especially where I'm from in eastern Kentucky, are really angry about their circumstances. And if possible, they would vote to change those, even if they don't think of that as a form of advocacy. But it still keeps them involved. Either they aren't being listened to, they haven't been empowered at any point in their life, and that nothing they have to say matters. I think that's when we have a real problem. And that's when people start to not believe in climate change or start to deny climate change actively because it's convenient for them. I am totally in support, even if it means that people are going to vote against what I would necessarily vote for. Lee, what what about you? What do you think about the idea of lowering the voting age? No, I definitely agree with what Lily's saying. At least for me, that'd be a couple years off. But I definitely feel like since youth are going to be most impacted by climate change, We definitely need to have a voice in the decisions that are being made about our futures. Voting is a convenient way to do that because you can have a say in the legislator and who gets elected to support you. So I definitely agree with what Lily's saying. I think that could be a very important part of the climate change movement. I'm curious to find out, you know, so you're, you're taking these awesome actions. And let me just be clear here, if it already hasn't come through to our listeners, these, our two guests today are currently in high school. So I feel embarrassed for my generation that all I could do was watch Captain Planet and feel like I've done something. So you're, I want you to know, Lily and Olia, you're putting myself and Joe Mascaro to, to shame here. We're just <laughs> in shame spirals right now. I guess, what are some barriers that you have faced in trying to move your initiatives forward? Are there barriers that you've overcome? And what are some barriers that you keep running into that make you want to sort of smack your head against the wall? What are some of those challenges? One quick thing first, just for fun, just so you know, I am only 13, so I'm not in high school yet. Um, Oh, my God. All right. Even. (laughs) All right. That's awesome, by the way. Uh, (laughs) um, So barriers, there are definitely some on the statewide level campaign, not as many. They don't seem as as many. I definitely are. But I haven't been like writing the bill, so I haven't run into quite as many as when I've been working on this climate action plan up in my town. But in Grammaray for our climate action plan, one of the big barriers is Grammaray's power source, Southern Minnesota Municipal Power Agency, also known as SIMPA. And they produce very, very little renewable energy. And a big, huge chunk of their energy comes from coal. And they just a couple years ago, a couple like 10 or something, built this huge coal-fired power plant called Sherco 3. And so they aren't very excited with Grammaray wanting to get to net zero emissions by 2040 because that's not going to help them sell their coal power. We're in this contract till 2050 with them and we can't get out of it. That's one of the challenges is how to get our city to net zero emissions before our contract is up. Right. Lily, what about you? Yeah, so I think a lot of the problems I face, unlike Olya, who I really commend because I do not know what I would do in that scenario if I felt like those factors were against me. And that's so incredible that you're doing this. But I would say a lot of the problems that I have faced so far have been on a more general level. 
I hate the term youth activism because it implies that youth have to be qualified if they want to be activists or the word activist has to be qualified when you're a high schooler or even a middle schooler. One of the things that I've constantly faced is this idea that youth are not legitimate voices and that our opinions, despite being the future, do not actually matter or hold relevance or are simply just ignorant in the present. And I think that's a perception of my generation that persists throughout the nation, even if it's more prominent in some areas than others. So I think even just staking our movement out as a legitimate entity is a huge barrier. Even though, again, climate change is something that's going to impact my generation and Olia's generation more than any other. Right, um, right. And actually, if I may add, yeah. when you said the bit about how, I know that it was in passing, but the bit about how you were so disappointed with how, you, or not disappointed, but, you know, you looked like, uh, slacker compared to us when you were in high school. I think that the scary reality is that my generation and Olia's generation is having to deal with so much fear and anxiety. And we've had to grow up so quickly. Well, at least if you're conscious of the issues at hand, you've had to grow up so quickly. And I think that spurred many of us to action. And I really love this line in a poem by Grace Paley that says, this world is a wreck, said the children when they came home with their children. There are bombs all over the place. There's no water. The fields are all poisoned. Why did you leave things like this? Where can we go, said the children? What can we say to our children? And I think all of us have a collective fear about the future that we do not want to pass on. And so I think that motivates us to make a change. Sorry if that was no, super depressing. No, no, it's things like that that are actually really, I know at least for me, it gives me hope because I know that a lot of people, I guess of my generation, you know, we feel a lot of climate anxiety as well. And, you know, I'm a scientist, so I just feel like, well, the science is out there. Why, why are we still debating it? And so seeing organizations like I Matter and just talking to you both is, is you know, I know I'm going to tell my students at my college, I'll play them this episode and I'll say, all right, time to step up your game a little bit. So it wasn't depressing at all. No, I didn't find it depressing, but I did get quite inquisitive and stare into space for quite a while. <laughs> so can you describe a little bit, uh, Lily or Oli, about what the Sunrise Movement, you know, because there's the Green New Deal and there's the Sunrise Movement and there's I Matter. And, and to a number of our listeners, a lot of these things sort of seem the same, but they might be different. Do you feel like you can sort of separate those three? I mean, I know they're connected, but what's your understanding of the Sunrise Movement versus the Green New Deal versus you know, I matter. So I can do it really briefly. The Green New Deal is a resolution that was, as of today, put forth by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the House of Representatives and Ed Markey in the Senate. Before that, it had been an idea that had percolated throughout a lot of, I would say, Green Party circles, if we're going really far back. But even now, um, many liberal ideologies, but also a lot of people who don't identify as liberal have been touting this idea of a 100% transition to renewable resources and renewable energy sources. It is also, though, 
a jobs guarantee and education guarantee, especially for people who will become disenfranchised with the flight of fossil fuels. And those are the two main principles. It has a lot of other subsets that are going to evolve as the resolution itself evolves, but those are what it's founded upon. Now, Sunrise has been supporting it since its conception. Sunrise is a youth-led climate movement across the nation that began a couple years ago to save the climate and get tons of green jobs in the process. So it fit that they immediately endorsed the Green New Deal because it fit exactly with their principles. Sunrise is driven primarily by college students, by young adults, and even by many adult allies across the nation who are working in decentralized hubs to lobby their representatives and also take action in their communities to continue this fight for 100% renewable energy. Olya, do you want to clarify kind of what iMatter is in your mind? Because you've done a lot more work with them. Sure, I can. Um, so iMatter is an organization that supports youth and is kind of youth-led, I guess. They work with youth in their local communities to help them help their cities tackle climate change at the local level. So iMatter is basically a support system and youth-led organization that is helping youth across our country take action at the local level. Is iMatter, so does it offer, I was sort of clicking around the website a little bit, I saw it offers trainings, is that correct? And and you mentioned the climate change report card. So is this something that iMatter has come up with or is this something that iMatter is helping to sort of disseminate? Yeah, the trainings are mostly for helping people take action in their city. So like they'll have a training on how do you present to your schools and some helpful tips on like how you can present. The trainings are online calls where they help youth get informed and answer questions that might occur. And then the report card, you basically give your city, and iMatter created this with help from leading climate scientists. They have this tool on your website, and you gather all the information that is necessary from your city and enter it into this report card tool. And it comes up with a report card that is a grade on how your city is doing at addressing climate change at a local level. So it like looks at youth involvement, renewable energy. Do you have a climate action plan? Do you have a greenhouse gas inventory? What's your waste? things like that. And it looks at those types of things and then calculates a grade from those numbers and percentages you gave. Okay. And what is the, you said you gave one to Grand Marais. What was the grade Grand Marais got? If you feel like calling out Grand Marais on a podcast. Oh, no problem. Grand Marais got a D plus. So I won't say we were very good before we came along. We had some groups that had created a plan, but like the emission reduction goals weren't clear. So it wasn't really being put into action by the city. So when we came along with our resolution, along with our report card with a D plus, we told them, so you have a pretty bad grade, but we're not just trying to show you what you're doing wrong. We're also trying to help you stop climate change. And that's what this resolution is about. So that's why our Youth Climate Inheritance Resolution worked in partnership with the report card because we could show them what they had been doing and then show them a way to fix their grade and also stop climate change. If Grand Marais got an F that, or a D plus, excuse me, then I'm pretty sure that most of where I'm at would be getting at least an F. Wow. I'm curious, you, you both identified so many detailed local initiatives that come out of the, the districts, the congressional districts that you both reside in, and of course, several national issues as well. Do any of the groups that you work with have a, an international flavor? And I, I asked the question because 
as you were noting, you know, the effects of climate change are going to fall so pervasively on younger generations compared to older ones. But another feature of it is that those living in the in the developing world, in developing countries, tend to also experience some of the, the worst effects. Um, are there any kind of international issues that you've gotten involved in? So one of my friends likes to joke, but I actually believe it in reality, that we need a green Marshall Plan. Even organizations like Sunrise and iMatter, who do incredible work in the United States, their scope is not beyond our country. The issue of climate change highlights one of the most pervasive problems in international politics in general, the idea that developing countries are not creating the bulk of climate emissions, or really very many at all, however, they're burdened with many of the effects. And I mean, even in this nation, obviously, minorities, people of low socioeconomic status, all of these people who are also not inherently causing more emissions, or at least not by their own doing, are also burdened with the effects of climate change. Sorry if you heard my dad in the background. He was laughing at me. Anyway. No, that's okay. That's um, all right. This should be a family really, affair, right? I really think, yeah, he's been in this for a while. So he thinks it's kind of funny that I'm just now making it my thing. Anyway, without any type of international agreement where all stakeholders can truly commit to it, then a lot of this is going to be in vain. Right. Right. But I mean, it's got to start somewhere, right? And and the actions that both of you and, and your colleagues are taking are great, right? I mean, you are going to inspire youth all over the globe, right? Who wonder if they can tackle these things. And, and you are proving that they can at the local level. And you know they can get in touch with their governments and they can get in touch with their representatives and give them a grade. If I give my students a D plus, I know they're pretty motivated to fix that grade. So you're right that international action is going to be needed. Coordinated international action is going to be needed. But things that you're doing are definitely where it needs to start. I just want to ask one last question here. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to mention? I might just add that it's very important for other youth to get involved. And so if they have a strong desire to get involved, please get involved because we need every one of the youth out there that are interested in being involved to help stop this problem. And also, I'd just like to throw a shout out to my friends in the nature group that I started in 2014. I mentioned them earlier before, but they played a crucial role in the climate action plan for Grammar A and are still playing that role there and helping on the statewide level too. I think one thing that's super important to remember is that especially when you're dealing with rural communities and especially when you're in high school, it's easy to be perceived and to create a dichotomy between the people who you're trying to help and yourself because of a lack of opportunity. When you're going into these rural communities that have been disenfranchised because of fossil fuels, but you're one woman, as is the case for me, who if everything you're advocating for changes, doesn't work out, I still have a future ahead of me. It's not dependent upon fossil fuel industries or coal mining jobs or anything that put them in this cycle of poverty in the first place. So I think having that empathy and knowing how to create buy-in at the root, knowing how to combat that perceived lack of opportunity and that fear of becoming involved and that fear of jeopardizing your future job chances, even if in reality they don't exist, is super important when we discuss rural communities. We all see the land differently. While I see it as something that can be conserved, that's because that's my privilege. 
That's because I've experienced national parks or even simply experienced the effects of nature working in the ways that it should. But if you view the land as something that's there to provide you with a livelihood, if it's something that must be destroyed so that your family can eat or survive, then it's a very different mentality. And so fundamentally, the environmental movement and the youth environmental movement is going to struggle with this. And we have to figure out how to overcome it and be mindful of it. Oli and Lily, thanks so much for sharing those your your great activism on climate change. It's really inspiring to see youth really tackling this problem head on. And I know that you all are going to keep inspiring the youth around you and your communities. And, and I can't wait to hear all the great things that are going to come from your actions. Thank you so much. And thanks for having us on the podcast. We really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It was really a pleasure to speak with all three of you. It's really empowering to know that climate activists such as yourself are taking the youth movement and specifically the youth climate change movement so seriously because this is something that impacts us and we are genuinely passionate and we are fighting against the stereotypes of apathy for our generation for a livable future. And to know that there are adults out there ready to be our allies, ready to support us is so important. Thanks, you guys. It was really amazing to learn about what you've been doing. So it was really great to talk with Oli and Lily about their great youth activism. So now what we'll do is we will turn our attention to some unexpected science. This is a recent segment where we're trying to talk about some of the science of climate change that most people don't think about. So recently, a cool study came out uh, this year about climate change in bees. And the researchers were trying to understand how a warming climate would impact the physiology of bees. And they were studying a bee called the mason bee. And this is the primary pollinator of a southwestern shrub. And they did this really, really interesting but sort of elegantly simple study where they manipulated temperatures of the nests that the bees were living in um, just by painting those nests a different color. So they raised temperatures by painting a certain proportion of nests black. And these were man-made nests, so these are not natural nests that they're going out and, and painting. They painted some of the nests white, and they left some of the nests sort of unpainted. So the white nests were cooler than, uh, than average, the black nests were warmer than average, and then the unpainted nests were sort of ambient normal temperatures. And they found some really interesting results. Um, the lead author on the study, Paul Caradana, found that bees in the warmer nests emerge with smaller bodies and lower body fat. He thinks that's the case because the warmer temperatures cause the bees' metabolism to increase. Yeah, who would have thought that climate change would cause bees to get less chunky? I guess I never really thought about the fat content of bees. What about you, Joe? Did you know that bees had fat content? I thought bees were, uh, you know, pretty lean, actually. Yeah. So I don't know how much body fat they have to lose, but apparently climate change is making them lose it. You know, while, while we're sort of laughing a little bit about this, one thing that's really important is think about what we get from our own fat stores, right? We get energy. And so the bees also get energy. So if they're emerging with lower amounts of fat, that's going to affect how far they can migrate to deal with climate change. That's going to affect how far they can fly to pollinate plants. And so there's a whole suite of ecological interactions that might be impacted just by changing the fat content of bees. But those are questions that 
um, need to be answered in sort of subsequent studies. Joe, have you ever heard anything like this before? Any other organisms sort of slimming down because of climate change? I've definitely seen a few studies where you're seeing evolution as a result of changes, human-caused changes to lands. There was a really interesting study about some birds in England that are growing slightly longer beak sizes so that they can access um, human-created bird feeders. So it's certainly uh, the case that organisms around the world are adapting to the human influence over the biosphere. But I'm definitely going to have to brush up on my bee aerobics this weekend to keep up with this. Yeah, fair enough. Well, on that note, I think we'll close. We had, we had such a great show today where we learned about the power of local action on climate change and how that action is not something that only has to be done by quote unquote adults. Oli and Lily are, you know, amazing role models of action on climate change for people of all ages, myself included. Thank you to my co-host, Joe Mascaro. Warm Regards is produced by Justin Schell and Eric Mack. Catherine Pinehart runs our social media and Medium page. And Joe Stormer is producing transcripts of our show. Thank you again to our guests and co-hosts. Please subscribe to the show so you can keep up with our conversations on climate change. And please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. It helps bring some more visibility to the show. For the entire Warm Regards team, have a great day.